Welcome back, U.S. History fans. Today, we're going to be talking about Prohibition. And remember, this is kind of an extension of our 1920s unit. You'll see a lot of crossover here. Now, just before we start, as I get this lesson together for you, I have a whole bunch of slides that I'm going to be going over that I helped to put together and whatnot. And as I look over it, I took out some of the pictures and videos and everything like that, and you know, just to make it easier for me to go over. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why on earth are you telling us this story? Well... When I have it all kind of down to the bare bones, it's 21 slides. And I just thought that was extremely ironic when talking about prohibition. So, I digress. Let's get going. Prohibition. What is that, you might ask? I'm here to tell you. Prohibition. The manufacture, transportation, import, export, and sale of alcoholic beverages is restricted or illegal. So, basically... You can't make alcohol, you can't transport, you can't import, you can't export, you can't sell it anywhere. It's all legal. All right, now there was one little part that they kind of forgot in there. They Later on they take care of that. But the um, yeah the whole drinking and consuming it, they didn't really put that in there. So anyhow, the idea of this prohibition, what they thought they were doing by getting rid of alcohol was it would eliminate drunkenness and the resulting abuse of family members and others. Okay, all right, seems pretty noble here so far. Number two, it would get rid of saloons. And if you get rid of saloons, there's other things that, that are bad that happen at saloons. For instance, pro uh, prostitution, gambling, and other forms of vice. And finally, it would prevent absenteeism and on-the-job accidents that were stemming from drunkenness. So this seems like a pretty good idea of how, you know, get rid of alcohol, get rid of all this other stuff too. Okay. Now... Prohibition came to be with the 18th Amendment. Now, if you remember in our last unit, the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. So we actually got rid of alcohol before women had the right to vote. Uh, just thought it was kind of interesting from, from a historical standpoint of like where some of our priorities were. So even though this was an amendment, even though it was the law and it is illegal, it's a lot like jaywalking. People kind of ignore that it is a law. So even though it was illegal to drink and do all this stuff back then, yeah, people still ignored the law for the most part. Now, that's not to say everyone was that way. Um, Kansas, for example, the law was obeyed at 95% compliance. 95% of the people were like, yeah, alcohol is illegal. Not going to do it. New York City, on the other hand, 5% of the people actually went along with the idea that alcohol was illegal. And this whole prohibition, it was enforced with the Volstead Act, which helped to get, you know, money towards, uh, you know, police and so forth and efforts to make alcohol illegal. Now, even though alcohol is illegal and it is still, you know, finding its way to the people, now this whole way of getting alcohol to people illegally was known as bootlegging. So basically, it was an illegal source of alcohol, and people would basically get alcohol to people in some way, shape, or form, and a lot of people would hide a flask or kind of flat bottle up against their leg, and this is where that term bootleggers got their name, is they, you know, in their boot, they had this little thing fashioned to their leg, bootleggers. But eventually it just became referred to anyone who was illegally supplying alcohol or bootleggers. And these bootleggers would make their own alcohol often 
with stills. And a still is a device to a device used, that sounds a little bit better, to produce alcohol from corn, grain, potatoes, and other fruits and vegetable sources. Uh, and it's all part of the fermentation process. Check with your chemistry teacher. They'll talk about fermentation of sugars and so forth. My knowledge is sadly kind of limited on that. Um, anyhow, the smuggling efforts that went into bringing alcohol to the people was ridiculous. They had fast cars that had these different um, like compartments underneath. And if the cops got too close, they could pull a lever and it would dump all the alcohol on the, the street. Um, People often would smuggle in alcohol from Canada or they would park a ship out in uh, international waters and then boats would go out there in the middle of the night. Uh, people would bring in uh, shiploads from the Caribbean, like rum runners, these fast boats that would bring in alcohol quickly. Uh, all kinds of different stories of how people would bring alcohol into the United States. And once this alcohol was in the United States, they had to sell it somewhere and they had to have these bars or saloons. Well, those were kind of illegal. So they had illegally operated bars and those were known as speakeasies. And the term speakeasy comes from the way a patron or bartender, you know, person attending a bar, not the bartender, but person attending a bar, um, how they would order the alcohol without raising suspicion. A bartender would tell the patron to be quiet and speak easy, and then henceforth, speak easy. Um, now, just to give an idea of how popular these speakeasies were, it was estimated that there were 700 speakeasies and 4,000 bootleggers in Washington, D.C. alone. And it only had around 300 licensed saloons before Prohibition. Massachusetts had 1,000 bars, uh, uh, saloons before Prohibition, 4,000 after Prohibition, and 15,000 bootleggers after. Um, and just... I don't know if, what, what the psychology behind this is. It's maybe like, don't think of an elephant. Well, okay, now I'm thinking of an elephant. So if people tell you it's illegal, now people want to do that? I, I don't know. It's kind of weird. But anyhow, when Prohibition came around, alcohol increased, it seemed. And these speakeasies, they didn't want to be found out. So oftentimes they would disguise themselves as like a flower shop or a pet shop or something like that. And, you know, you would, you would go up and you'd have a special knock on the door and that little, like, little eye-looking-through area would kind of open up and say, uh, what's the password? And they'd let you in. Or sometimes you would he you'd go into a flower shop and in the back there would be a refrigerator. You would open up the door and it would lead to a secret staircase and then you could go in and have an illegal drink and so forth. And just kind of craziness. Now, this whole idea of this, you know, secret places to drink and having to bring in alcohol illegally, this giant supplying of illegal liquor was very, very complex. Uh, I mean, you had to worry about manufacturer, transportation, storage, and sales, and all this stuff. And it started to lead to this, like, illegal organization or organized crime, more like it. And so gangsters originally worked independently, but they found that they could make more and cover more ground if they worked together. And this gave birth to this organized crime and there was multiple different groups. And remember, they're operating outside of the law and outside of business regulations and everything. So groups started to compete with one another. We're going to be talking about Al Capone here in just a second. But rival gangs would compete for territory and fight with one another. And a lot of the common weapons that were used were machine guns. Uh, the biggest one, the Thompson submachine gun, nicknamed the Tommy Gun, um, and sawed-off shotguns were very common during this time. And 
bootlegging what seemed to go hand-in-hand with prostitution, murder, gambling, and racketeering. Now, the other ones you've probably heard of, but that racketeering, maybe not so much. And this involved the bribing of police to ignore illegal activities. So they would, you know, like if a business wanted to operate illegally, they would pay some gangsters and the gangsters would protect them from gang wars and being blown up uh, or something along those lines. They would pay the police not to swing by this shop or maybe they would tell the police to swing by the shop because they hadn't paid the, the gangsters recently. And so the gangsters really controlled and ran lots and, uh, of these parts, especially in Chicago. And probably the most notorious gangster from Chicago was Al Capone, who had murdered his way to the top by 1925 and got the nickname of Scarface. And he had lots of money at his disposal, around $60 million, um, in one year alone from bootlegging. Now, that is tons of money, and you put that into today's terms, it's even more. And he paid off all these different people, cops, judges, city officials, you name it, everyone was on the take. And just a couple little quotes from Al Capone's, I thought they were kind of interesting. I am a kind person, and, a, and I'm kind to everyone, but if you are unkind to me, then kindness is not what you'll remember me for, Al Capone. And... The one I really like from him is, you can get much farther with a kind word and a gun than you can get with a kind word alone. So, yeah, he was straight to the point. Now, one of the reasons that Al Capone really kind of came to the forefront, to the top, was because of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. This was on the morning of Thursday, February 14th, 1929. St. Valentine's Day, henceforth the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Seven members of the Bugs Moran gang, who was rival to Al Capone, um, they basically were out and about and they were they were killed here in a massacre. And the plan was to lure Bugs Moran and his men to the SMC uh, Cartridge Warehouse on North Clark Street. And there was basically a promise that there was a cheap whiskey shipment. So... Uh, Al Capone had his men like spread the word that there was, oh, there's this cheap shipment of alcohol and so forth. Stop on by, pick it on up. And the plan was to have a four-man team that Al Capone had uh, that would enter the building and two of them would be disguised as police officers, police officers and they would kill the Bugs Moran gang and his men. And before Bugs Moran and his men even arrived, Al Capone had stationed lookouts in apartments across from the warehouse. So all this stuff, they were... It was organized. It was kind of like, oh, organized crime. So anyhow, um, four men arrived at the warehouse in two different cars, both of them outfitted to look like detective sedans. And the killers, these two men dressed as policemen, walked in and told the seven men to line up facing the back wall. Now, from what we can tell, there wasn't really any resistance because these Bugs Moran gang guys... They thought that this was, you know, they thought, oh, these are real police, and oh, the police are just coming in. See, during this time, the police would take bribes or take money, you know, that whole racketeering thing from a lot of bootleggers. So this was kind of commonplace. The bootleggers would, oh, yeah, you want to arrest us. Let me put my hands up against this wall, and oops, I've dropped my wallet in the meantime. If my wallet loses some money, I would not be the wiser. So the bootleggers, these Bugs Moran gang, they thought that the cops just wanted some money. So they were like, oh, yeah, sure, well, you can arrest us. Well, why these two cops are holding them up against the wall and like, you know, oh, you know, hands up and so forth, 
the two other people in the cars that were dressed in normal clothes walked in to the warehouse as well. So now there is four of the Al Capone gang guys in there, two of them dressed as cops, two in regular clothes, and seven of the Bugs Moran gang up against the wall. And then these four guys that were part of the Al Capone gang used Thompson submachine guns, Tommy guns, and just started lighting them up and just... That was the sound of a machine gun, if you couldn't tell. And... So obviously, I, I just gunned them all down, uh, about, around 70 bullets or so that we figure. And now obviously guns are going to make a lot of noise. So people, you know, kind of peeking their heads out in the, uh, you know, around the surrounding areas trying to figure out what's going on. And so to, in order to show that the, the civilians, the bystanders, these other people that heard these gunshots, that everything was under control, the two guys dressed as cops escorted the other two guys dressed in normal clothes outside. So it looked like two cops had just arrested two regularly clothed gentlemen. And so the cops put these two guys in these two cop cars, I'm doing air quotes if you can't tell, and then drove off. And the entire time Al Capone was living it easy in Florida and could not be linked to the massacre. Now we don't know 100% that Al Capone was responsible for this massacre, but it's largely, you know, kind of assumed, I guess, that he was part of it. Now, Al Capone, you know, kind of on top of things, you know, murders way to the top and, you know, all kinds of money and whatnot. Well, 1931, crime doesn't pay because Al Capone was finally captured and sent to prison and he was convicted of all things income tax evasion. So here's this guy who orchestrates all these murders and everything like that and he didn't pay his taxes. That was the big thing we got him on. And he was caught by Elliot Ness. And Elliot Ness was, you know, kind of the, the big guy who he was considered untouchable, that Al Capone could not bribe him. We were racketeering. He couldn't intimidate him or anything. So there's actually a movie called The Untouchables. Rated R. It's really good, though. But make sure you're old enough to see it. Now, Capone uh, was sent to jail and he eventually made it actually to Alcatraz. And while he was there, he was suffering from an untreated case of syphilis. And the infection went to his brain and kind of messed up his brain a fair amount. And eventually he kind of went crazy and was seen as no longer a real threat to society. So they actually released him. And so Al Capone caught in 31 and whatnot. Um, and this 18th Amendment that started Prohibition was actually um, repealed 15 years later in February of 1933, and it was repealed with the 21st Amendment. Now, we've already talked about the 18th Amendment, which made Prohibition happen, the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, and now we're talking about the 21st. I know it seems like I skipped the 20th, um, so I am going to come back to that. So, spoiler alert, it's about a lame duck. So, all right, gang, we're going to stop there for today with Prohibition, and we're going to be picking up next with the stock market and the stock market crash so more to come i know that i am in 1933 and the stock market technically already crashed but i kind of wanted to keep prohibition altogether. so stay tuned stock markets coming up next